from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, more voices from last week's GreenBiz 20 conference, eight takeaways from the 2020 GreenFin Summit, Harvard Business School on the new climate on climate, and how CSOs can talk to CFOs. We're lost in translation this week on 350. It's February 14th, 2020. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is the co-host of my heart, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, I don't know what I'm going to do when you're on vacation next week, Joel. Well, I know what you're going to do. You're going to co-host the podcast with uh, Deanna Anderson. So I am going to do that. that I'm going to miss you so oh. much. <laughs> well, Where are you going? You. I am off for a little midwinter vacay uh, to Cabo San Lucas in uh, Baja, California, Mexico. Uh, so uh, just uh, get out and about and... You know, we didn't get any sun last week in uh, in Phoenix. In fact, uh, here in the Bay Area this week, it was it was warmer uh, and more you know beautiful, brilliant sunshine in high sixties. Far better weather than we had in uh, in Phoenix in the desert when we were it was supposed to be in the seventies or eighties. So um, it, anyway, so next week I'm I'm going off. It's my birthday week, and so uh, we're gonna do a little celebration and a little R and R. Well, it's supposed to be nine degrees here tonight on our Valentine's Day, so wow. I, I don't en- I t- you don't envy me, and I envy yeah. you. So, do you and yours celebrate Valentine's Day? We do celebrate, but we celebrate by throwing a party for our friends. So we'll have a few couples over for dinner tonight, and uh, just sit by our fire and enjoy an evening with with people that we love. That sounds loverly. So uh, nice. What about you? I'm mean, uh, have to ask because you asked me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, dinner at home, but a, a, a special dinner, if you will. Um, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. yeah, just a, a nod. Uh, you know, I'm not personally a big fan of what I call Hallmark holidays. You know, the right. One, the ones that are derived from, you know, the industry as opposed to personal milestones, birthdays and anniversaries and New Year's and a couple of others, more milestones in, in, in my perspective. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, you got to acknowledge it and uh, and it's, it's good. It's a three-day weekend here in the United States. So uh, it's all it all comes together nicely. Yeah, it's been a really busy week already. I feel like... Green Biz 20 was about five years ago, <laughs> in like like work hours or something. It just uh, my brain is uh, we're, we've been processing all the stories coming in, all the great stories coming in, which we'll talk about a few in the moment. But it's um, full steam ahead for for our next event. Well, there's no rest for the weary, and that's particularly true in the world of sustainability. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've often described uh, our little company as a, as kind of a hamster wheel, which is that we're always working on our next three events. So as you know, as soon as GreenViz 20 was over uh, at the end of last week, uh, this week we're we're on to Circularity 20 in May, Verge 20 in October, and GreenViz 21. 
next February back at the uh, Marriott Camelback Inn in, in Scottsdale. So, um, yeah, it just keeps going and going. And that's aside from everything we do, you're, you know, you and the editorial team, just every single day cranking out, uh, you know, five or so stories, a hundred a month. And, and uh, yeah, we never, there's no, there's not really any downtime here. A little bit during the holidays, uh, a little bit in, you know, the end, well, not even the end of summer because we're working on Verge. But anyway, we won't bore folks with that. Let's Yay! get into the business at hand and the <laughs> week in review. I will get us started with a story from GreenBiz contributor Meg Wilcox, who was with us at GreenBiz 20 last week. And she attended a session called The Protein Transformation. And it was a number of food companies debating the the plant-based protein movement and and how it's going to impact basically animal husbandry, right? And, and, And whether or not it will steal market share, will create a new market and so forth. So there was a, a good dialogue going on. Uh, the, the moderator noted to begin the session that, you know, on the menu of, of the hotel that we were at, the very hotel we were at, there was both a responsibly farmed shrimp cocktail, so animal, and a vegan section. So I think the, the point is that uh, the, the main takeaway I had from this this story was that there will be a lot happening alongside each other that because of different reasons, uh, you know, people are are adopting vegan diets and plant-based diets for very, very different reasons. They're not necessarily caring about sustainability. They've got some health issue that they're concerned with, or, or potentially they, they simply ascribe to the, to the concern for animal welfare. And that that's driving, driving their interest in, in vegan and plant-based foods. But for me, I see it as not an either or, but a yes and. Absolutely, yes. And um, uh, this is obviously, there's lots to chew on here in a growing area uh, in the world of, of alternative proteins and not just the, the burger stuff. We covered in our State of Green Business Report this year, we're going to be seeing eggless egg, fishless fish, uh, pigless pork, uh, and, and you know, shrimpless shrimp, and, and on and on, um, and 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 that's even before we get to some of the truly alternative things like insects and other protein-rich ingredients that are already being used by hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people around the uh, around the world for as a protein source. Um, but um, now, will I think start coming uh, over to the more developed world. And yeah, some some great companies here. Um, I love uh, two of my favorite companies are mentioned here as a partnership, Griffith Food, uh, which is a really terrific privately held company that makes uh, all the and designs all the sauces, uh, marinades, uh, coatings, batters, the special sauces for a lot of companies, uh, national uh, food companies around the world. I actually interviewed their uh, Chairman and the family scion, uh, Brian Griffith, when I was in, in Davos uh, last month. And there's just a, a really, in, in a partnership they have with Cooley Cooley is an uh, Oakland-based company that we featured their CEO as a 30 under 30, which, uh, and they're the two companies, Griffith and Cooley Cooley, are working together to produce a highly nutritious plant that can be uh, included in products to to uh, improve the nutritional composition and you know 
just make some of these foods, which may not be to our tasting liking, a little more interesting and and uh, palatable. So yeah, this is this is great area. And uh, later in this episode, I'm going to have an interview with Jim Giles, our food and carbon analyst, uh, who is, this week launched our sixth weekly newsletter, Food Weekly, talking about exactly these kinds of issues and many others as it gets into sustainable food systems. So uh, this is a topic I think we've talked about before that we are leaning into and will mm -hmm. increasingly. I have one more point I want to make on this, though, uh, because I think it's something we need to explore and I'm, I'll, I'll give this note to Jim. <laughs> but uh, for me, the, the plant-based movement has some special challenges. Uh, I can't eat nuts. And I can't eat certain, I can't eat lentils. And I can't eat soy. So many of the sources of protein that we talk about, because a lot of those items are what makes up plant-based diets. And so I think we need to be concerned with uh, the dietary uh, limitations of individuals and how that might affect the plant-based movement. So I'm just throwing that little curveball in there to, to get us thinking, but um, it's something that we haven't talked about, and I think it's something that we should. We should, absolutely should, and, and we do talk about all of these as, you know, in the it's all good uh, framework, and it's not always the case, to your point, but also there's been some articles and analysis that shows that the nutritional value in terms of calories and sodium of some of these alternative meats um, are actually uh, greater than for the animal-based original uh, that they're replacing. And so there are nutrition considerations and obviously food sensitivities, allergies, considerations too. So it's not always all good, but I think particularly as, as as hundreds of millions, billions of people actually uh, start to join the middle class around the world from developing economies, particularly China and India, we're going to see a greater demand for protein. We are seeing a greater demand for protein. And so starting off, uh, you know, a a lot of these uh, consumers and eaters with uh, some of these alternative proteins before they get hooked on burgers and you know, McNuggets and things that that we all seem to have caught into here in the developed world, um, I think that's they may play a bigger role there than they do for the rest of us, where it may be seen as an alternative or a, uh, a once or twice a week respite from the traditional protein sources. So um, th- this is all being sorted out. The technology is developing, but so too are the the habits and how these integrate into our daily eating habits for not just us, but for uh, all of the world citizens. So a fascinating topic, which is why we're launching uh, Food Weekly, which is why we're launching Verge Food this fall. So enough on that. Let's move on to the next course. And on the menu is the uh, Greenfin Summit which I had a little something to do with last you week. You did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, our, uh, another contributor of ours, Sarah Murphy, did a terrific job of taking these uh, two half days that uh, we spent talking about the challenges of what it would take to align uh, and leverage capital markets to drive the global economy towards sustainability. Uh, we did this, uh, two, as I said, two half days, 200 sustainability and investment professionals. We had $22 trillion in assets under management in the room and more than 50 Fortune 500 companies. And it was a really terrific event to go back to the previous story, very meaty in terms of its content and engagement and the level of people we had in the room. So we are doing a report out that's going to be a longer, uh, you know, 
well, a report on, on what actually transpired there. But in the short term, Sarah captured eight takeaways from that. And, and one of the points that Sarah pointed out here is that uh, ESG environmental, social, and governance analysis has become a fundamental element of risk analysis, something that companies do every day and um, that is starting to be integrated into traditional risk analysis, core discipline, as she points out, not an optional strategy. And and we heard that uh, repeatedly, and we had not just sustainability people in the room, we had the National Investor Relations Institute, the National, uh, the Council on Institutional Investors, and the National Association of Corporate Directors, which are corporate secretaries. And what's fascinating is how all three of them and others are aligning with uh, the uh, investor relations and the sustainability crowd to really drive this conversation forward. The last thing I'll say in this uh, is I I recently talked to um, the sustainability executive from a a large global Paris-based food company, and she said that in 2018, she had two meetings with, with investors, and last year, in 2019, she had 20. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, and so this uh, event was really you know, trying to true up that, those relationships. How do uh, they share a conversation? And that's easier said than done. Yeah. So for me, the, the main takeaway of the takeaways was the the reporting elements of this, right? So the it's very difficult to figure out what to talk about, especially for the S, right? The the metrics around the social, the social issues are very hard to talk about. I mean, I suppose it, you know, okay, okay, we have this many people on our board that are diverse, uh, you know, but it, but it, it's become it's a struggle for many companies. But the and this is the one I really love. The robots are coming. That that the fact that is there's a lot of machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence services that are scraping news and that are basically going to tell your story, your ESG story for you if you do not if you do not really get out there in front of, of being transparent. So you know, <laughs> these external sources might be be actually taking over in the future for for some of the reporting that the companies do. So I, that for me was like one of those big kind of ahas. Wow, something I need to keep an eye on myself. And not to keep plugging our annual state of green business report, but one of the ten trends that we pointed out was exactly that. Uh, John Davies, uh, our vice president and senior analyst, wrote a piece about how these bots are now. Um, combing the, the, the web and, and corporate sites and looking for even s- uh, small differences in, in wording from year to year where one year a company said we, we might or we should or we will uh, and another year or the next year that is tweaked to say we did or we are or something like that. And something that uh, a human analyst who's go spends all day going through reports may or may not be able to discern that change year over year. The bots certainly can, and and so I think there's going to be a lot more data here for companies and analysts, investors to parse and uh, increasingly integrate into their uh, what's called risk-based asset allocation decisions. So I'm going to move over to a third story um, about trees and deforestation and conserving and restoring forests. Uh, this one did not come out of the Green Business 20 conference. We're getting back into the rest of the world here. But another contributor, Carol Klaus, uh, wrote a piece uh, looking at 
the growing number of companies that are seeking to offset a portion of their climate emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, by investing in forest protection and reforestation. And you throw into that the Trillion Trees Initiative that kicked off by uh, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff and embraced by President Trump controversially uh, that uh, this has become a, a hot button issue about. It's funny because you know the tree hugger uh, stereotype and the you know save, clim- solve climate change by planting a tree, which became sort of a uh, almost a quip and, and a stereotype, uh, is now becoming mainstream. You know, can we really plant a trillion trees? Don't know. There may not be enough room to do that, but. Even, and, and will they all live uh, to actually do their duty in, in sequestering greenhouse gases? No, uh, but some portion will. But I was thinking, you know, even if there's a 95% failure rate, Heather, that's still 50 billion trees. <laughs> so uh, that's a lot of, uh, of, of tree hugging to do. So yeah. I think, that, you know, there's something here, but uh, Carol, Carol got into sort of the bigger picture. What did you see here? So, yeah, there's two things that, that really struck me. One is that th- there are a lot of big companies that have, have come out and are, have actually started buying and, and buying carbon offsets to do this on the voluntary market. So JetBlue made a, a, a pledge uh, to offset all of its U.S. flights. Microsoft is talking about using this as a way of, of removing their carbon debt, of paying down their carbon debt. And so the, the piece, fundamentally, what it does is looks at that how that's affecting the volume on the, the voluntary carbon markets. It jumped Oh, I think it would hit a, a high in 2018. It had it had doubled um, from just two years earlier, and that that was before all these pledges you, that you just mentioned. So I think that, num- that number one, I, what that will cause is there has been a glut, and so the prices have actually been pretty low. They were they were around like three dollars per ton of of CO2 in 2018, according to to, to research from Ecosystem Marketplace. But the, the thesis of this sto- story is that that's probably not going to last, right? So we're going to see the prices rise. So as more companies do this, they're, they're still low right now. They're still in the 4 to 10% uh, $10 range. But uh, there could be a, a price increase. And, and if you think about the, what's happening on the, regular, the regulatory compliance markets, right, the ones where you have to do this, the prices are much higher. So that's something to think about if you are planning to use these offsets as a, as a natural carbon so, uh, removal solution. And the other thing is that they're really not, there really can't be a substitute for doing something, right? So the extent to which the offsets are helping supplement actual action, <laughs> like people that are actually not deforesting forests and that are actually investing in, in ways of of putting less carbon in the air to begin with. I think that they cannot be a substitute for doing nothing. And so that's the other point that is being made. There's a fear, of course, that that will happen. But the companies, the two companies I I mentioned are very well-meaning. I don't see that happening. Um, But as more companies do jump on the bandwagon, the greenwashing potential is very high here. Sure. And to that point, Tree planting is a no sacrifice, uh, no skin off my nose, uh, a fairly relatively low cost thing to do. And so I think it's going to gain a lot of popularity um, out there politically, uh, popularly in the, among the public around 
you know, this is a simple thing we can do. I've all, you know, everybody knows trees. Uh, let's plant a trillion of them, and then we don't have to do anything else. And that's, you know, we can drive our cars. We can, you know, take our long showers or whatever it is. And and I think that's that'll be interesting to watch. Is this uh, a sort of fig leaf for for real action, or does this become a true part of the uh, of the climate toolbox? Time will tell. As promised in our last episode, we've sorted through the rest of the audio from our Green Biz 20 plenary sessions to identify more highlights from the main stage. I've assembled five of them, picked simply because they highlight revelations that are particularly relevant to corporate sustainability professionals, or quite frankly, because they spoke to my heart in some way. First up is some perspective from the conversation with Ruth Kimmelshoe, Business Operations and Supply Chain, and Chief Sustainability Officer for Cargill. She spoke with Green Biz food and carbon analyst Jim Giles about a range of issues, everything from what it will take to develop more sustainable beef production methods to how Cargill uses satellites and sensors to improve its practices. In this exchange with Giles, Kimmel Shu addresses Cargill's failure to meet its 2020 deforestation pledge. I would love, I'm sure everyone would love to better understand like what, why were you not able to meet that pledge? Yeah. So it goes back to, you know, it's, it, it actually informs a little bit of the concern and the fear that we had about making our scope three commitments because we'd made this big pledge and we had said, you know, we're going to try to, our understanding of the pledge was have deforestation on our supply chains by 2020 and eliminate it by 2030. Time marched on. We made really good progress in our palm supply chains. We made very, very good progress in our cocoa supply chains. Soy was the area that we uh, didn't make the progress that we needed to, very frankly. We weren't alone. The industry hasn't made progress either. Um, But the reality is that we made more progress than we otherwise would have. And because we made the pledge, we've redoubled efforts to really engage in those supply chains where we have the most critical need. One of the things that we're doing is we have created a forest panel, and we've invited unusual voices to the table to come and advise Cargill, NGOs, academics, business people, to come to the table and advise Cargill about what do we need to do to make an impact specifically in our soy supply chains. Hands down, one of the most inspiring sessions was the main stage interview with Daniel Lee, executive director of the Levi Strauss Foundation. The company has a long history of playing a role in important social issues, from leading the movement to desegregate its factories long before it was legally mandated, to playing a role in funding AIDS research. I could have chosen many clips to feature. In this one, Lee talks about the philosophy of, quote, brands taking stands, end quote, and why Levi Strauss is going one step beyond. The exchange includes the setup question from Lee's interview with veteran reporter Mark Gunther. You and I were both at the panel yesterday talking about brands taking stands, essentially. Yeah. And, and it, it has discussion. been really interesting to see in the last two, three years, really probably since the Trump election, companies standing up around issues like LGBTQ rights, uh, gun violence, gun control to some extent, um, immigration as well. And so Levi Strauss has been part of that, but you've gone 
again, a step beyond not just to say we support, you know, we don't like this draconian law in Indiana or we don't like the bathroom bill in North Carolina, but we are going to fund some of the grassroots organizations that are fighting against those measures. Um, have you found corporate allies? Have you asked other companies to say, you know, help us in supporting immigrants' rights groups mm. or LGBT rights groups? Well, I would say the 2016 presidential election was a critical moment. And it, it, this is the most disruptive political environment that in, in, in our lifetimes. And I think disruption... Um, Call, calls for asking questions. Do you I, stop I what you're doing? I thought disruption was a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. But these are moments of truth and pressure testing moments for values. And we ask that question, do we stop what we're doing? Do we, do we start doing new things? Or we do more of what we're doing? And I actually want to go back to that 2016 presidential election because it, it was a critical moment where, you know, many of us were surprised by that, uh, by, the, by the result. And I was incredibly hungover two days after at a town hall meeting. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. And, and Chip Berg, our CEO, had a town hall meeting, and he calls it chips and beer, and you can ask him any question. And, and, and inevitably, the question of the results of the election came up. He was unequivocal, and he said, now more than ever, this is the time to show the country and to show the world what it means to be a, a values-driven institution. And he said, originality, empathy, integrity, and courage. Empathy and courage are in short supply. And if this is the time for us to step up and show who we are, let's do it. Um, he also pointed out that, that there are hard-fought gains in diversity and inclusion that stand to be, uh, I think, stand, that's, that, are, that are under threat here. Um, we had a foundation board meeting, our foundation, two days later. And, you know, Chip actually called upon us to say, I want a special meeting of our foundation one, one month into this administration, and I want to know if... If the candidate versus number 45, the administration is, A, not as bad as we thought, it was a lot of bluster, B, bad, or C, horrendous. And I want to know, I want to separate conjecture from fact. So our team really looked at what, what, at, at what was happening. We saw the executive orders with, you know, with a lot of, with, with a different lens, and we realized that so many of the communities that we've long cared about as a company and that we've stood beside are facing threats at the hands of the policies of our own institutions. So we adopted, out of, out of that meeting, February 7, 2017, what we called a rapid response fund, which was yeah. $1 million um, to protect groups that are facing, um, you know, that are in the crosshairs of the policy environment. Muslims, South Asians, um, refugees, immigrants, and members of the trans community. Two CEOs graced the GreenBiz 20 stage on the last day of the event. First, we'll hear from Doug Baker, Chief Executive of Water, Energy, and Waste Services Company, Ecolab. This highlight of Baker's interview with GreenBiz Vice President John Davies focuses on how environmental, social, and governance issues shape the company's high-level conversations with investors. We've had a lot of discussion around how do you engage investors more we talked last night, Bill Gates owns 4% of your, your company, but when you're in and Wall Street talking to the other 96%, how do you get the conversation to focus more on sustainability? Are they interested in your customers or in Ecolab's performance itself? Well, that's changed too. You know, maybe as recently as two years ago, I would be in conferences, ESG, investor conferences, and they would ask, is this like a topic? And I would say, honestly, I don't know how many conferences I've been in today, hundreds, 
And I don't know if I've gotten two questions. Now, that's radically changed the last couple of years. And I think there is a lot more companies are you or you know fund managers using ESG screens. Some are pure. Some use it just as a trying to understand resilience and potential risks out there. But it's a it's a much bigger part. I said our personal you know our journey as a company is really one. If you look at our roots, we always work to understand process and impacts, mostly around economics, but increasingly around sustainability. They're very related, by the way. I mean, if, if you can make something using a lot less water, you will save a lot of energy, too, and the cost of making that product will come down. Now, it's not as simple as snapping your fingers. You've got to re-engineer the process. I mean, this has got to become a priority in a company. You can't just say, I wish it so, and it happens. We can't do that in our company. We have to do the same. You know, we've got to eat our own medicine. And so we, we understand the challenges, but it is both economic and environmentally smart when you go after this. I think what, the reason ESG companies like us is that it's inherent in what we do. So it's not like a hobby. We do evil during the day, and we do <laughs> ESG at night, and somehow we're magically <laughs> equal or ahead or whatever that equation would be. And I've heard people describe their lives like that. You know, I'm philanthropic because I really understand that all my decisions might not in the light of day. And you're like, oh my God, that's a cruddy way to live. So... <laughs> So, I mean, we really have tried to, like, build this. So, you know, the more we grow, the better impact we're going to have. And people say, well, it's, you know, natural for your company. Well, it wasn't natural before we did it. And so some of this is how do you figure this out and how do you create that virtuous cycle? And I think once you've got it, it's recognized. I mean, we're widely held by funds at US ESG screens, but... But I guess I'm not yet believing that if we don't perform financially, that will remain the same. I think, <laughs> right. I mean, but, but I can't invest in my company if I don't perform financially. I got to create more cash to invest in R&D, to invest in talent. I mean, it doesn't work without, without increasing your, your capabilities, right. right? So So we've talked a lot about environmental and... Uh, you know, I also took a look at your board composition. Pretty, pretty good, diverse board, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, you've never really reported or set goals around sort of the S in ESG. So I know that you're in the process right now of evaluating what type of goals to set. There's been a lot of discussion here this week around diversity and inclusion. I just wonder what's your sort of lens both within Ecolab, and then you serve on a number of other boards, and so what you're also telling other people about what you're seeing in terms of inclusiveness, you know, the more social aspects of this. Yeah, well, we have real goals internally. We just haven't made them public, which is going to change. And, you know, some are complicated, some aren't. I mean, you know, women in leadership, why don't we start at 50%? That's, you know, the goal. It can't be, well, the pool's this and that and everything else. So, I mean, some of these are not going to be hard to articulate and go out. And we're not there yet. I mean, we've improved every year, but we've got a long road to go. Um, I, here's how I view. I, I think more, okay, do we always like the request to publish everything? No. And I think it's more just human, but I don't think it's the right response. I mean, the truth is it will be healthy. 
and it will draw attention. Some things are more public than others, so certainly board diversity is quite public. You usually have a picture on your annual report. It's sort of high, hard to hide from it. And you know, our board's evolved hugely. Right? When I took over 15 plus years ago, we had one woman, you know, no people of color. We have five women today, two people of color. I mean, it's a completely different board, and it is generationally, but it's a great board. And I, you know, there is no, this idea you sacrifice one for the other is completely stupid. And it's just not borne out by anybody who's really gone on this journey. I think everybody who asks says, yeah, you know what, my board's better than it was as a consequence of this, which is what we all preach when we talk about diversity and inclusion. But I don't know that everybody believes it to their core, you know, when you get down to it. But if you experience it, right, it will start changing people's perceptions. I know it's changed people on our, my board's perceptions, I'm sure. I mean, they don't, you know, this isn't confession time, but I know it has. <laughs> we can have you lie down on the yeah, couch. Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we I mean, can, I we I can analyze there. how things yeah, have been going. But, <laughs> but I, I think that's important. So I think the fact that S criteria is gonna, is gonna also be a requirement or expectation is gonna be good. The second CEO clip we'll share is an outtake from GreenBiz executive editor Joel McCower's interview with Jim Fitterling, CEO of Dow, the global material science company, which is focused on the evolution of the plastics industry. The discussion touched on a variety of topics, including Fitterling's acknowledgement that Dow will need to rely on fossil fuels for many years to come. In this exchange, Fitterling shares his hopes for his legacy at Dow. I want to take uh, the company to a space where, where people look at us as a solution provider, somebody that they can reach out to, and that we'll work with them and collaborate with them to create this future world. That ambition of being the most inclusive and customer-centric, uh, innovative and, and sustainable material science company is something we live every day, but I'm not sure that the public appreciates that yet. And when we get done, I hope they do. That sounds a little bit like a corporate comms answer, with all due respect to all of my corporate comms friends. What is your personal, how do you want personally, Jim Fitterling, we look back at the Fitterling era as CEO of Dow, what happened? We made a change from uh, being just focused on financial results to focused on financial results and impact on the world. I, I'd say that's the biggest change. I like and, it. Um, and got all of our people, not just the management of the company, but all of our people at all levels uh, engaged in driving those solutions. The final clip from our Green Biz 20 highlights comes from a rousing conversation with Brian Messinas, advocacy director for the Arizona Youth Climate Strike. Messinas spoke about how his experiences as a first-generation Mexican-American, the child of a working-class family, have shaped his mission to speak out on climate justice. The group, which started with five students about a year ago, now has more than 100 organizers in 13 cities throughout Arizona. The interview conducted by Shauna Rappaport, the executive director of the Verge conference series, was punctuated often by applause. The moment I'll share here focuses on the answer to this question. What's your ask of the business community and adults in general? Here's youth climate activist Brian Messinas. What I really need from all of you is I really need all of you to feel the urgency of what my generation is feeling. You know, 
we see this almost every day. You know, a lot of us deal with a lot of, you know, anxiety and depression related to eco-grief and, you know, the fact that, you know, while we're sitting here and we're having these conversations, simultaneously there are still ecosystems collapsing, species going extinct, and other human beings across the world, you know, being displaced and affected by the climate crisis, losing their homes and losing their lives and everything they know, and yet nothing is still being done to solve this issue. So I need you to feel that urgency, and I need you to really feel what we feel every single day. And that is that, you know, we need these solutions, and we don't have time to be waiting for these long discussions to happen. We needed these long discussions years ago, decades ago, when we knew about what the climate crisis was, and we didn't have them. So right now, when people tell us we need to take things slow, right now when people, you know, tell us we're being too aggressive, that we're being too, you know, forward-moving, that we're not, we need, we need to learn to take things slower, I think they needed to learn to take things faster years ago when they found out about these issues because right now we don't have any time to waste with the political niceties and not being honest with our thoughts. You know, a lot of adults tell us we come off the wrong way, that we should take, you know, a moment to consider being a little more calm when we're having these conversations. I think we need to be angrier. I think we need to be hearing more of the outcry from our generation and from adults too because it's so important that in a lot of the spaces we still can't enter, you can and you can be doing so much more. And I know at this conference, so many corporations and businesses are being represented. And a lot of, a lot of people you're here representing those employers should feel ashamed about what your companies have been doing or have not been doing over the past few years. One of the conversations at Green Biz 20 this year had a lot to do with the integration of sustainability and financial considerations as part of the Greenfin Summit, as well as a number of the sessions during the main conference. And how do you how do you have a sustainability officer talk to the chief financial officer? There are models of how that can happen. And here to talk to me about what we should be doing more of is Brad Sparks. He is the U.S. Director of the Prince of Wales Accounting for Sustainability Project. Brad, thanks for joining Green Biz 350. Yeah, thanks for having me, Heather. So I've got to ask first, what is the Prince of Wales Accounting for Sustainability Project? <laughs> yeah, so the Accounting for Sustainability Project, otherwise known as A4S, is designed to really equip finance leaders with the understanding of where the relevance of sustainability is within the finance function. Um, back in 2004, when the project was set up by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, uh, the conversation was how do we make sure that the tools and techniques that finance and accounting professionals are using in the 21st century are really fit for purpose and not based upon the models that were being used in the 20th century, uh, which they traditionally have been. So this is chief financial officers, financial managers. This is not sustainability folks. That's right. It's CFOs and the finance team. So we exclusively engage with the finance function of organizations uh, and the wider finance community, including uh, business schools and capital markets. So you've, uh, you're beefing up the U.S. presence. Curious, are there companies in the United States that are good models of what you'd like to see? Yeah, we launched our U.S. chapter of the CFO Leadership Network last April in 2019, and it builds upon an existing global network of CFOs that A4S has been working with for a number of years. What is exciting is when we launched the U.S. program, we had a number of CFOs uh, immediately recognize the benefits of being part of this network, and that's primarily by being able to learn from other CFOs as to really how they can benefit the business by embedding sustainability within their finance function. Any particular companies you can mention? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we have a, a number of, of leading organizations in our group. Salesforce, um, the CFO of Salesforce, Mark Hawkins, is the co-chair of our U.S. CFO Leadership Network. Uh, they've done a tremendous job of actually integrating some sustainability and ESG measures within their financial reporting. Uh, another great example from the private company side is Mars. Uh, Klaus Agard, the CFO of Mars, um, has recognized that there's real financial savings associated uh, with the integration of sustainability, and he's been a great advocate in talking about their experience at Mars. I love that you just gave me a public company and a private company as an example, because I think a lot of individuals get hung up on, oh, we can't do this as a public company. Talk about that perception. That's right. There's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's value add for all types of organizations by really starting to understand the leading practices that are being done today and using sustainability information to make better business decisions. So uh, when we think about public companies, you know, the traditional conversation in the past has been around uh, corporate disclosure. While that's certainly an important piece around uh, the role of the CFO and finance function in this area, um, what we're really focused on is how do you actually do better internally uh, and make better internal business decisions based on uh, more holistic and comprehensive information. So that's the current CFOs and the, the CFOs that maybe are 10 years out. What about the ones that are 20 or 25 years out? Are you engaging with universities and, and so forth to help build this, this mindset into MBA programs, for example? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, and business schools and top leading uh, finance programs are definitely a, a target audience for our group. In just a few weeks, we'll be speaking at the Global MBA Summit on Climate and Capital um, and talking to traditional MBAs, finance-focused MBAs, about the relevance of climate change uh, to their future careers. And that's not only recognizing um, that there are certainly going to be climate-related risks that are going to impact maybe what they end up doing in 10 to 20 years, um, but there's a world of opportunity um, as they think about potential careers that uh, climate is going to directly influence. What advice would you have for a CSO, a Chief Sustainability Officer, in engaging and starting that conversation with their CFO? Yeah, the, the key is to talk in their language, right? So uh, within AFRES, what we've been able to do is have a number of different case studies, technical guidance, and other practical guides that are written by finance for finance and make all those data sets available through the accountingforsustainability.org website. Um, it's a great reference toolkit for uh, CSOs to think about um, by practical areas where uh, they can go out and start to engage with their CFO and learn from other CFOs and finance leaders as to how they've advanced sustainability in their organization. Well, Brad, thank you for joining us on 350. You just heard from Brad Sparks, the U.S. leader for the Prince of Wales Accounting for Sustainability Project. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for GreenBiz. And last week, I hung out at the Bloomberg Mobility Summit in San Francisco, where a couple hundred transportation leaders convened to talk about mobility trends like electric vehicles, urban mobility, and automakers adopting more sustainable materials. During the event, I had the opportunity to sit down with the president of Neste U.S., Jeremy Baines, who late last year was promoted to lead Neste's focus on the U.S. market. 
If you haven't heard of Neste, they're a Finnish oil company that's been building a substantial business around selling renewable diesel or diesel for trucks and heavy-duty vehicles that's made from bio-waste like animal fats or used cooking oil. Companies in cities, like the city of Oakland, can run their trucks off of renewable diesel and slash their transportation-related carbon emissions. Neste also produces bio-based jet fuel for airlines and bio-based polymers and plastics for brands like IKEA. Baines explained to me a little bit about what Neste is trying to do with its renewables business. So Neste has been around for 72 years, so with a long history. And like a lot of oil companies, we started off as a traditional oil company after the, after the Second World War. But Neste has always had an interest in cleaner transportation fuels, um, coming out with uh, unleaded gasoline 10 years before the standard, 10 ppm, uh, low sulfur diesel, uh, 0.1 bunker fuel five years before the, the IMO standard came in place. And was researching renewable fuels um, in the in the late 90s and developed our what we call our next BTL technology to convert uh, bio biomass to liquid fuels. That's what Neste means. It means uh, liquid. Um, and and I think that's in, in the last 10 years, 15 years. That's really been the growth story of Neste. Is this transition from a traditional oil company to a renewable company? We used to be called Neste Oil, and we dropped the oil out of the out of the name um, five six years ago, as another kind of commitment. Hey, this is this is what we really stand for. I also asked Baines about why a fleet should opt for renewable diesel over buying electric vehicles, and this was his answer. I don't I don't think we we're necessarily saying that because um, Neste is in the business of fighting climate change, um, and there is no single solution. Um, we see that um, passenger vehicles are being electrified, and that makes perfect sense. We see medium duties being electrified, and that makes perfect sense. But when you get into the hard-to-abate sectors, uh, heavy-duty trucking, uh, agricultural, construction, um, aviation, marine, there's going to be a mixture of, of different uh, solutions out there. It's going to be a polyfuel world where you're going to have electric and hydrogen and RNG and renewable fuels. Um, so it's going to be a mixture of things. of 18 top business schools, including Harvard, Duke, and Yale, will co-host the second annual Climate Cap at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. A rich array of topics is on the agenda, ranging from managing conversations with myriad stakeholders to how to mobilize a workforce to how to create a culture of innovation around climate action. Here to speak with me about Climate Cap are co-hosts from two of the partner schools. Katie Cross is Managing Director of the Center for Energy Development and Global Environment at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and one of the catalysts for the conference. And Jennifer Nash is Director of Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. Ladies, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you. Thank you. So, Katie, I want, I want to start with you. As I know, uh, as I mentioned before, Duke was uh, the original uh, in, initiator of this uh, idea. And I'm just curious, you know, when you look at the level of interest in climate action among your MBA, MBA students, what sorts of questions are they asking? 
Yeah, thank you. So uh, as you can imagine, um, the MBA students that we work with are, are mostly millennials, and I think their generation is um, probably more keenly aware of the reality of climate change than the generations that have come before them. So they already understand that climate change is happening and it will have consequences for their lives. But, you know, one uh, thing that I think that we as business schools can do better and, and what they're looking for us uh, to help them on is to understand the specific tangible implications of climate change for business. So the students who are MBA students today will be graduating into roles as um, managers at consumer good companies or tech companies or food and ag companies. They will go on to investment banking or they'll be entrepreneurs. And they're going to need to understand, you know, all the implications of, of climate change, whether that's um, how and where climate change will disrupt supply chains, um, how it will change agricultural production, how it's likely to affect real estate valuations, um, where there are investment risks, um, but there's also innovation opportunities too. So our, our students are really interested to, to help make those connections, not uh, just to climate change as an issue um, that they can engage on, but how it will specifically affect their, their business careers. And that's what we've been focusing on with the, the Climate Cap Program, which is a partnership between 18 different business schools um, that started two years ago. Um, so Climate Cap is not about necessarily engaging in political or policy discussions. It's about simply looking at the business risks and opportunities related to climate change. Um, we think that's going to benefit our students, and it's also going to enable us to open doors for more students um, to engage with this topic, students who might not necessarily be thinking about a career that's specifically oriented toward climate or sustainability or environmental issues, but helping even uh, the mainstream MBA, the, the MBA who's going into investment banking or into any other discipline understand how this is an issue that's relevant to their business as well. So Jennifer, what's the perspective from Harvard? Is it, is it much the same? Is it different? I think we're hearing many of the same things that you just mentioned um, here at Harvard Business School. Certainly students are asking, you know, how big a deal is climate change going to be for my career? But, you know, recently the conversation has almost shifted because it seems like all of a sudden people are like climate change. It, they've just accepted the reality of it and have quite a nuanced understanding of how it will impact, you know, investment, real estate, electricity production, food and ag. And so it's, it's kind of like people are now grappling with the reality and saying, how can I use the skills I'm developing here at Harvard Business School to confront climate change? Um, and I think that this has really energized the conversation here. So it's not so much, you know, this is a terrible problem. We kind of moved on from that, like, yes, it's a terrible problem, and what am I going to do about it? And so we see a greater focus on the opportunity side. Not that there's not going to be a lot of pain associated with climate change, but what energizes our community is the problem-solving aspect of, you know, business challenges. So, you know, just to give one small example, in addition to the interest in climate cap, 
Um, and we do have at least a few students going down to Darden School to participate in the climate cap. But even closer to home here on campus, we're seeing um, we have a food and agriculture club on campus. It used to be called the Agribusiness Club. Today, it's called the Food, Agriculture, and Water Club. And the first time this year, they held a conference on creating the sustainable food system of the future. So that's the kind of energy we're seeing. Um, we have a new sustainability club on campus. We never had one before. New this year. A lot of student interest, and they're talking with our career and professional development office to plan an event for the fall and careers and sustainability. And a lot of this is fueled by interest in climate change. So this is for both of you, actually. But, you know, if you think about what the students are wanting and needing out of these dialogues, what does that mean that the faculty is doing? So how, how what changes are your schools making to to the skills of your faculty, as well as the curriculum. So, yeah, I can start on my end. Um, you know, changing curriculum at a business school can be a complicated and sometimes a slow process. So one of the reasons for that is that uh, generally faculty are trying to teach a specific business skill set, like accounting or negotiations or marketing. And we want to integrate the topic of climate change, but we also need teaching materials or cases or examples that enable the faculty to be teaching that functional skill set um, and incorporating climate change into the conversation. So, you know, one challenge is um, finding that the, the right teaching materials. Um, the other challenge is that a lot of our teaching materials, um, we often use the case method at, at Duke, and cases tend to be, you know, an example of a challenge that a company had in the past the students kind of wrestle with what would be the solution to that, and then uh, the faculty talk, discuss what actually happened at the company. So they tend to be a little bit backward looking, and as we all know, you know, the climate challenge is a very much a, a forward looking, a future looking um, challenge, and new information is coming out every day, and new examples and new innovations are coming out every day. Um, not all of that is written up into uh, teaching cases yet. So. Uh, one of the things we did this year was we surveyed our peer institutions, um, many of whom are partners in this Climate Cap Initiative, and asked, um, asked them what classes do they have that talk about climate change, what cases do they recommend, but also what other teaching materials did they find useful, whether that's industry reports or academic papers or um, simulations that they've used in the classroom. And then we compiled that into a, a working paper um, that we called Teaching Climate Change in Business. And we shared that not only with all, uh, all the faculty here at Duke at the Fuqua School of Business, but also um, made it publicly available and shared it with all of our um, peer institutions so they could share it with faculty who are looking for innovative ways to, to broach the topic, um, both in the curriculum and in extracurricular offerings. Um, and then lastly, we're, we're, we are also planning to have a workshop um, when we convene for Climate Cap next week. We will have a workshop just for faculty and, and programmatic staff uh, to talk about uh, the best practices and ideas for how we incorporate the climate change topic into the classroom. Yeah, Jennifer, has there been a similar sort of embracing of, of these ideas at Harvard? Uh, yeah, I, 
Uh, first of all, I have to commend Katie for putting together that compendium of teaching resources on climate change. It's a pretty long list of cases and other supplemental materials that faculty can use. And I was really pleased to see it up on the Ideas Worth Teaching newsletter, gave it prominence, getting a lot of attention so that we can kind of spread the spread the wealth. A lot of great materials have been developed um, at Harvard Business School, but in many other institutions that faculty can pick up and use. But just to reflect on what's happening here at HBS, you know, I think we have seen an interest in business and environment in the curriculum for many years. Um, uh, first of all, just a note about how things work here. We have the whole first year of our two-year MBA program is required. So all 930 students in the first-year class are taking the same courses with the same teaching cases. And so it's really a kind of top-down um, structure where there's a lot of control over what our students are being exposed to, which is kind of a, a challenge as well as an opportunity. We have been really fortunate in the faculty leadership of some of these required courses. For example, new this year, Rebecca Henderson, who's on our faculty, who is a visionary in the area of reimagining capitalism, has taken the lead in the required course on leadership and corporate accountability. And so she's infusing teaching cases about climate change and sustainability more generally into that course. So all 930 students will be learning a case, for example, on the Japanese Global Pension Investment Fund and their decision to use ESG indicators in their decisions about where to invest. So we we have this opportunity here that's being realized for every one of our students to be exposed to both the challenge and the opportunity that climate change offers. We're seeing, for example, in the required course on technology and operations management, again, every one of our 930 MBAs takes this course. There are two environmental cases, one on indigo agriculture, which has a regenerative agriculture challenge it's begun called Terraton, um, as well as a case on sustainability at the IKEA group. So, we're seeing cases that are exciting, are new, are timely, that we hope will capture the students' attention and really get them thinking about um, you know, how they fit in, how their careers can take shape in this environment. So you've got this two-day conference coming up, and I'm sure that you have some things you want to accomplish there. So Katie, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what exactly is sort of the end game, if you will? What's the, the mission of the, of the collaboration specific to Climate Cap, but also how does it extend beyond the conference? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, first I want to give kudos to the Darden team, Erica Hertz and Becky Duff are the co-chairs of the conference, and they have a whole team of folks who've been working on putting together a really terrific 
agenda. Climate Camp is different than other conferences in that it is specifically oriented toward MBA students. So we'll have the speakers who represent industry, many of them from employers that students care about, you know, um, Nike, JP Morgan, you know, consumer goods companies, consulting companies, banks. But then the registrants are only MBA students. So it's open to MBA, any MBA student from any university. But it's not an industry conference, so it's not open to other practitioners to attend. So hopefully the students really get a lot of value from interacting with their peers at other schools. In general, our, our goal with the Climate Cap, not just with the summit, but also with the program and platform is, is just to really to continue to reach more and more MBA students to engage them in the conversation about business and climate change. Um, I think there's a temptation often to, to feel like climate change is such a huge problem and it lives within the realm of public policy or environmental activists, but there's a lot that business can do and there's a lot of uh, real tangible risks to business that students who are graduating now, whether they really want to be engaged with the issue or not, are going to be, have to be thinking about. So they're going to have to be thinking about resilience. They're going to have to be thinking about um, how they innovate in a world where climate change is affecting their business and where investors are asking for ESG and reporting, where there's pressure from their customers or from their employees, as we've seen at many companies this year. Um, so our goal is, you know, to help students think no matter what industry they're going into after graduation, no matter what they think their functional role is going to be in those industries, um, that they need to understand climate change and the opportunities to innovate as well as the risks that it will present to their business. So our goal is to continue holding the Climate Cap Summit annually. Um, we already have plans to host the 2021 summit in Kunshan, uh, China. We have a Duke Kunshan University partnership campus there. And then our goal is to expand the network to include more schools from outside the U.S., not just in Asia, but in, in Europe and Latin America, and hopefully create an ongoing annual summit, but also to use the Climate Cap Network as a platform for helping faculty and students feel inspired and motivated and plugged into the resources to begin having these conversations at their own campuses, whether that's you know, helping to change the curriculum, whether that's hosting their own events. I know that uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business has an event on climate innovation and, and business this week, whether that's to hold alumni events or to develop new um, and exciting thought leadership on the topic. So that's our, our vision for Climate Cap is to, to fundamentally become a, a platform for catalyzing more of that action. Okay, so your turn and, and opportunity to tell GreenBiz350 listeners uh, what additional support you would like to see from the business world, right? The future employers of these students. So Jennifer, uh, start with you. Thank you, Heather. Um, well, let's see. I, you know, one of the things we're struggling here with is we see a lot of opportunity on the innovation side, but we are not seeing a lot of opportunity on the policy side. And we'd like some help kind of defining a role for business leaders in helping to shape climate policy moving forward. I think we've seen for many years um, just a couple of segments of our economy, the 
traditional oil and gas interests um, kind of dominating the policy discussion. But today we're realizing that really all sectors need to come to the table, whether it's, you know, food and ag, transportation, real estate, finance, and help shape government's role in a climate um, resilient future, reducing the risks from climate change. So um, we're looking for leadership, um, examples of companies that are taking on trade associations that have perhaps been too narrowly defining their business interests, um, really looking for innovations on the policy side and the role of business leaders in helping to shape climate policy. On my wish list is I, I feel that sometimes a conversation about climate change is so polarizing. You know, I am always looking for opportunities to hear, uh, for our students to hear the message about uh, climate impacts from someone other than the sustainability officer. Certainly we, we know that the chief sustainability officer is a great spokesperson and champion on uh, environmental issues, but it's so powerful when we hear messages that come from, you know, the CFO or an investor team or from the CEO. So uh, if there are businesses whose CEO is outspoken on this, we're always looking for opportunities like that to bring those people to campus, to bring them to Climate Cap or other events, or to, you know, have our students have a chance to interact with them. And just the final idea I'd like to make is that, you know, I hope that when companies are coming to campus to recruit our students, they're coming with an understanding that our students are looking for opportunities to really apply their MBA skill sets, but they also really care about the company's values. So they really want to hear that message of companies, how they are incorporating environmental and social factors and thinking about those as a business. So I'd love for recruiters to keep that in mind too, as they are um, presenting to our students, um, that this is a great opportunity to, to talk to them about issues that they're passionate about. Absolutely. Hear, hear. Thank you, Katie. Hear, hear. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on Green Biz 350. You just heard from Katie Cross with the Duke University Fuqua School of Business and Jennifer Nash with Harvard Business School. This week at Green Biz, we launched our sixth weekly newsletter called Food Weekly. And here to talk about that is Jim Giles, our senior analyst for carbon and food. Hey, Jim. Hey, Joe. So why a newsletter on food? Well, I think we've seen this big shift in the way that food is being talked about, and it's really overdue, and it's great that it's happening. You know, for a long time, the conversations that we were having about food weren't really factored in, well, weren't really factored in to the larger climate debate. So that's not to say we weren't having conversations. If you look at the key issues, things like deforestation, biodiversity loss, water scarcity, you go back 10 years, 20 years, we're having conversations about those problems at those points, but they weren't factored into this bigger conversation we've having about climate change and, and the, the catastrophic potential effects of climate change. And what's happened over the last few years, which is wonderful, 
is that this whole issue of land and food has begun to become part of the climate debate. And then in parallel with that, we're also seeing the emergence of new business models and new technologies that give us the potential to address those problems I've talked about. So you put all those things together, we think it's just a really exciting, daunting challenge, but an exciting challenge. And that's why we're, we're putting together a Food Weekly to, to track progress towards that more sustainable food system. Wow, that's a lot of content. Uh, is, are big companies leaning into this now, or is this the er, uh, area of startups or NGOs? What's the role of, of the corporates in all this? Yeah, they're absolutely leaning in. You know, So just for example, let's just take one solution that we're interested in, which is uh, alternative protein. So in, in 2018, this is the last year that we have data, there was half a billion dollars invested in alternative protein startups. Um, and that includes money from major corporates like Tyson. So you're seeing uh, big food companies investing in these startups, launching their own brands. And, and they're doing that because they see consumer preference shifting. You know, we know that millennials um, really put a high priority on wanting to align their purchases with, with more positive uh, climate futures. Um, and so these companies are realizing that if they don't change, they're going to lose the market. I imagine one of the topics you'll also be covering is the supply chains, uh, these sprawling supply chains that go to, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of suppliers for a single commodity for a single company's value chain. Um, What's going on there? What are some of the topics within that that you see are, are hot button issues? Yeah, there's so much going on, you know, so we're just back from our, our GreenBiz conference that took place last week, and there were multiple sessions addressing this. So, you know, just to pick out a couple of issues that I heard again and again, obviously, um, you know, attempts to address food waste within the supply chain are really critical. We're seeing the the adoption of, of new software packages that, like, on the face of it, look like kind of, they're pretty dull. They look like a kind of accounting package, basically. But actually, they're incredibly powerful because they're allowing say food service companies for example for the first time really to track waste you know they just weren't able to measure it so they wanted to do something about it well the first step towards doing something about it is being able to measure it um, I think more broadly, right across supply chains, we saw a lot of conversation about data and about the need for big companies to be able to, to really look backwards and forwards along their supply chains and know more about what's going on. And in, in agricultural trading, that's absolutely critical. And it's still hard for a lot of the big ag traders really to know as much as they'd like to about their supply chains. But I was thinking, actually, Jim, a little bit more about some of the smallholder farmers in the developing world that are providing the, the commodities that become the ingredients that become uh, ubiquitous in, in, our, in our food supplies. And within that, there's a, a range of, well, the whole gamut of social, economic, and, and environmental issues. Do you see companies, the big companies, the big, big food, if you will, uh, starting to address some of those issues? So that is a fascinating question. Definitely something I want to look into in Food Weekly. You know, I'll be honest that I don't quite know what to think about that. And the reason is that if you go to the big companies, you're going to get an absolute yes. They're going to say for sure, and they're going to point you to projects like demonstration farms in a developing world. And they're going to talk to you about funding that goes into, you know, elevating the role of women farmers, for example. The big question that I have that I haven't seen properly answered is, how do you take that change and, and move it from 
well-meaning demonstration projects to systematic change that is integrated into a global supply chain. And it's that second thing, which is obviously much harder to do and potentially more expensive to do, that I'm, I'm still looking for great examples of that happening, which is not to say that it isn't, but they're not so apparent to me. So all of this rolls up into Verge Food, the fifth conference, uh, along with Verge Energy, Verge Transport, Verge Circular, and Verge Carbon, that you will be chairing uh, the Verge Food part and Verge Carbon, but you'll be chairing Verge Food, building that new event within the Verge ecosystem. Um, Tell me what you're excited about for Verge Food. Oh, I mean, so many things. It's hard to know where to start, really. I think, you know, the food sector has this wonderful combination of factors. One is like there's a lot of really exciting emerging technology. You know, I mentioned alternative proteins. A lot of that work is underpinned by like some fundamental scientific advances in synthetic biology, for example. So there's some really kind of great, nerdy, exciting technology out there. There's also profound and difficult issues around social justice and equitable distribution of food. And as we said, the role of smallholder farmers. And then, you know, another component of it is it's just good fun. It's food everyone loves to eat, you know. And so what I love about this sector is it really combines all of those things in a way that's very challenging, but in a way that I think that makes it super accessible. And we're going to see which is we're a hallmark of everything we do at Verge, but we're going to see this kind of cross-fertilization. So we're going to see all the other conferences at Verge, energy, transport, circular, carbon, feed into what we do at food and vice versa. Lots on the menu. And if you want to subscribe to Food Weekly, go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. Uh, and Verge Food will be coming up the last week of October, the 27th to the 29th in San Jose, California. Jim Giles is Senior Analyst, Carbon and Food here at GreenBiz Group and Editor of Food Weekly. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We now publish six a week. You go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them, particularly check out Food Weekly, just launched this week. We love hearing from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. As I said, I'll be out next week, but Heather will be here with co-host Deanna Anderson. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.